The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Um, good to see you guys. Uh, for those of you who I have not met yet, my name is Neil. I'm one of the pastors here on the staff at Park. Um, tonight is the last night of Gospel Center Live. You guys made it all the way through. Well done. Or maybe some of you, this is your first night. You made it Any of um, But good to see you guys. Good to have you here. Uh, tonight we're going to talk about uh, what does what does the gospel mean in terms of transforming our lives for for broader society? How do we engage the culture? How do we engage um, our vocations, um, our, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our homes? Uh, what does it basically look like to take our faith public? Um, and we have some some basic categories we often assume with that. Hopefully, we can break into some of those and, and see what uh, what the text has for us tonight. Uh, real quick, Group Connect is this coming Sunday, so that's that's our we, we often call it our, our uh, speed dating for small groups, uh, where you, you show up in a large room with small group leaders, gospel community leaders, and get a card with a map on it. Um, if you're not yet plugged into a gospel community, I'm just curious, how many of you are currently plugged into a gospel community? All right, so we have a few. Uh, for the rest of you, I highly encourage you, highly encourage you, if you want to uh, invest further in Park Church um, and or just get to know Park a little bit better. Um, we often say the two pillars of our church are Sunday corporate worship and our gospel communities. Um, that, that is where so much of just life-on-life interaction happens. Uh, not just on that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday night, but also the relationships that are formed and, and spread out from there. Um, so I encourage you guys, go to Group Connect. It's after each of the three services on Sunday. Uh, just go down to the and there will be a handful of gospel communities down there. I'm happy to meet you and invite you in. So, I encourage you to do that. I think that is the only announcement I have. So, I'm going to pray for us, and we'll jump in for a minute. Father, thank you that you've made a, a really fascinating thing to call us to, to steward, uh, to step into, to engage, um, that you've, you've wired us all differently. Uh, you've given good gifts to us. Uh, you've given us experiences and uh, different areas of education. You've given us context. Uh, to serve other people. Um, you've given us spheres of influence. You've given us relationships. And I ask that tonight we would, we would see more fully, um, Jesus, what your work on the cross and in the resurrection and the fact that you reign now, what that means for those different spaces in our lives. Uh, may it not be just some sort of abstract teaching, but may we, may we think well, um, and may we, we learn to, uh, to not just be hearers of your word, but really put these things into practice, uh, to be doers of it. Help us to know what that means and, and what it looks like. Uh, so give us wisdom. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so I read a book in high school. See how long it takes you guys to go ahead and this. And just, what was it? Sorry, I said Oh, thank you. Yeah, the singular book that I read in high school. Um, I actually, it's funny because I, I had this theory that I could, I could listen to on audio, on uh, CD, some of the books as I was falling asleep, and then while I was sleeping, I would somehow retain some of the information. So I used to do this in high school until I realized I failed some of the tests. It actually doesn't work. Um, so this book is, is premised on a, a group of young boys who crash in a plane and land on an island. And very quickly, you, you identify two of the boys, and one of them is a little bit larger, and the other one... Lord of the Flies, yes. And so, so think about it. how many of you guys have read *The Wonderful Life*. Great. Right, so, what are the what are some of the things that first happen 
um, as these people, as, as these, these boys um, kind of brush themselves off and find one another, what, what are some things they do? Establish a leader, great. Piggy, you remember Piggy? So they found someone, they found someone to, to make fun of and kind of ostracize. Very quickly. You guys remember? Made a fire to try to, to try to get help. So they organized some of their labor and, and went up to the mountain to try to create a fire and say, if a ship comes by, then we want to make sure they see us here. You guys remember the the way they, they beckoned everyone? The conch shell. Yes. You guys remember some of the rules they established around that around that shell? You had the shell could speak, and, and that would also be the, the means by which they would gather and organize and assemble all the people that were on the island. They would flow that, and would echo throughout the island, and they'd all come together and they'd make decisions together. What I remembered from that, and what has stuck with me from Lord of the Flies, is the fact that developing society, developing a civilization, organizing people in community is it's basic to being human. You put these a group of, of young boys, um, consider what the, what the different options are that they've done. They could have all kind of individually walked off by themselves, how can I do it myself, I'll figure things out on my own, um, I'll find food, do my own thing. Of course you can have people throughout the story that try to do that. Um, they could have all immediately hurt one another and said, oh, if somebody's going to survive, it's going to be me, and so I'm just going to destroy everyone else that's, that's a uh, number of different things they could have done, but instead, they begin organizing for the common good. They, they create some laws. Um, they, they, as simple as, hey, if you have a shell, you're able to speak. Um, they have an assembly of people. They, they develop a leader and actually have a, a little miniature election to find out who's going to be this leader. Um, they develop an army. They, they realize, oh, there's no one else on this island, so we don't need an army. If we can take that army, now they can go hunt for food. So they organize their labor somehow. They have a very basic economy. So it's, it's very fundamental to us being human that we organize ourselves in relationship to one another. The question is, what, what gives shape to that civilization? civilization? What gives shape to that society? Uh, what defines the particulars of how that, that gets unfolded? Um, we can see that, that it doesn't always work out well. Look over to uh, Genesis chapter 11. The story of the power of Babylon. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its tops in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves. Let us be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the tower came down, or the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and therefore confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off uh, building the city. Therefore its name was called Babylon. Because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. 
All right, so what, what do we see in this text? What's taking place? They organize. People are organized. For what purpose? Build a tower. Why do they want to build a tower? It's fun. It's entertaining. Make a name for themselves. Make a name for themselves. Make themselves great. So you see that. They're even articulating their purpose in, in why they're doing it. Verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. So that they're, they're organizing themselves. They're, they're developing a civilization with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now let's compare that, let's flip back to Genesis chapter 1, and see what God says about this whole idea of humans organizing themselves. Uh, Start in so chapter 1, verse 28. So God creates man and woman, and he said that God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then jumping back up to, to verse 26, says, then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creature thing that creeps on the earth. So God says, let's make Mankind, let's make male and female in the image of God to exercise stewardship, exercise dominion over all of creation, to make his name great, to represent God. Whereas now, very early on in, in human history, people are organizing themselves and say, let's build something that's going to make our name great. The, the centerpiece of this, the focal point, is that, that we would do something that is worthy of, of praise so that we're receiving, not putting on display what God has called them to a couple quotes from the ESV Study Bible on this text. Uh, speaking of the Tower of Babel, this presents a unified humanity using all its resources to establish a city that is the antithesis of what God intended when he created the world. The tower is a symbol of human autonomy, and the city builders see themselves as determining and establishing their own destiny without any reference to the Lord. Then later they say, the Babel enterprise is all about human independence and self-sufficiency apart from God. The, the builders believe that they have no need of God. Their technology and social unity give them confidence in their own ability, and they have high aspirations. So what we have in, in the Tower of Babel is people organizing themselves, essentially in rejection and rebellion against what God has commanded them to. God, God, God says, I've created you, I've created all these uh, these things for you to, to wield, to, to tease the value out of. Um, he, gives, he gives the first man a job uh, to cultivate the earth, uh, to make it beneficial, to make it fruitful, to make it worthwhile for other human beings. He says, you're doing this as a representative of me. Like, here, here's who I am, here's my character, now you go reflect who I am, reflect my glory. And now humans are turning this back on themselves and saying, I actually want to do it for my glory. And my comfort. Let's organize ourselves. Let's not, let's not be spread out. Let's organize ourselves so we can be just safe and so that we can make a name for us instead of making God's name great. But the reality is, that's not the only way to do it. Um, so often we think that um, okay, maybe, maybe culture, that thing out there, is, is evil. Uh, the thing we need to, to avoid. 
Um, the, the movies, the music, the, the different things that go on, that, that's the evil culture that we have to pull ourselves away from and, and abstain from, and that's what it means to be a faithful Christian. But really, if we understand what, what culture is, um, Andy Crouch defines it as what we make of the world. In two different senses. One, what, what do we actually make physically? What, what tangibly do we make? Uh, what do we create? Um, that could be a, a spreadsheet, it could be um, if you're an artist, it could be a, a good cup of coffee if you're a barista, different things that we make. But it's also what we make of it in terms of how do we evaluate it? How do we think about it? How do we attach meaning and value to the things that we see and experience on a regular basis? So that's, if that's our operative definition of culture, then that could be good or bad. If that doesn't have to be evil. Um, we're all making sense of the realities around us all the time. We're all doing something. There's, a, there's human activity going on uh, for all of us uh, perpetually. It, it's basic to who we are. The question is, what forms the center of that activity, of that thinking, uh, of that, that civilization? Um, it's interesting. My, my wife and I were over in Europe, uh, kind of like a graduation celebration trip, and went to the Netherlands, and my wife is actually Dutch, and we found um, some relatives of hers up in, in Friesland, which is northern Netherlands. And so we're up there visiting with them, seeing them, and we're going around from little town to little town to little town. And consistently, we found out a certain structure in the center of those little villages and towns. You guys know what that is? Church. Church, over and over again. Like you can see it from, from miles away. Oh, there's the steeple of that church. And, and again, as we get closer, we'd see the, the entire town. The entire village was organized around that church. See, what we value, what, what we worship, what, what we find really a lot of meaning in, what we begin to organize our lives around, both in, in real, tangible, physical ways, but also intangible ways. The, the way we prioritize, the way that we love, the way that we speak, the way that we interact with people. Um, you look at cities today, I, I was uh, in a conference in New Jersey a couple weeks ago. It was right across from Manhattan. Uh, right across the bay. And so on my window, I, I could see Manhattan. Those are all buildings of, of commerce and business. Now, those things are, are not evil by any means, but they demonstrate what, what is most valued the entire city is organized around commerce and business and trade and, and what goes on in the economy. Uh, if you look at a map of an aerial view of Washington, D.C., and you have um, the White House, and you have some of the monuments that all the roads run to, like those are the organizing principles of that city. That's what's valuable. Um, you, you look historically at, at Rome. You know the, the saying of all, all roads lead, or all yeah, all roads lead to Rome. That was the um, the, the, the most powerful city uh, during that time period, politically, economically. Everything pointed back to Rome somehow. And, and so we see that on a, on a macro level, but if we think about our own lives, we see it on a micro level too. Okay, how do we take the things that, that we have in terms of, of time, of money, of relationships, of energy, our jobs, um, the, the people we know in our neighborhoods, roommates, spouses, kids, how are we wielding and stewarding those, those things, those opportunities, those realities of people, um, to what end? Uh, we had a speaker out here back in February. He's a professor at Calvin College, uh, James Smith. And he, he talks about how so often we, we think of ourselves as humans as being primarily thinking beings or 
maybe believing beings, or um, even feeling beings. He says if we, if we take the, the Bible's understanding of humanity, then what we see is that we're fundamentally desiring beings. Like we want things. We long for things. We, we worship things or people. And it's usually some sort of like polytheistic conglomerate of things that we really long for and want, but our vision of the life. But what brings us to that place of joy? Um, if you were here yesterday, uh, Gary was, was preaching on that. What's our conception of joy? And implicitly, you don't have to teach anybody to do this. We begin organizing our lives so as to get that, or th- that basket of goods, or whatever the thing is. That we have to um, so it's not a question of if we worship, it's a, it's a question of, of what we worship and how we organize our lives. And that place of worship, that place of loving and desiring, is what forms the rest of our activity, the things we pursue, the decisions we make, the way we handle relationships. Um, there's a, a direct causal relationship there. So I want, to, I want us to turn to our tables now, uh, that first discussion question. What things, tangible and intangible, do you find are organizing centers in the lives, homes, and communities around you? So this could be something for you personally, it could be something you see more broadly. Um, wherever you see it, what, what are things that, that we tend to, in our culture, organize our lives around? So take a handful of minutes and we'll come back and we'll check that. All right, so what do you guys say around your tables? What are some organizing centers or principles that you guys see come out in our lives? Work. Work. All right, so work. What else? What else is often an organizing center in our lives? Resource? Nice. Okay, so resources and perhaps the, the recreation that takes place. All those, or are you saying like the actual natural goods that. Got you. Got you. Got you. Great. So, waterways, means of transportation, train, things like that. Great. Sports? Yes. Why I-25 is always rough coming to church. Schools. Schools. Relationships. Are you saying religion in a, in a positive or negative sense? Religion kind of like, hey, this is my worldview, completely traditions and ways of doing things, and that's just that's the way it is. Cool. All right, so I wrote these up here because our tendency is to is to select kind of the either as individuals or picture a lot more people behind it, or as societies pick kind of our basket of the things that we value the most. And those are the things that we, we organize our lives for. That, that's we, we lay down our lives. We make sacrifices. We worship these things so that we can attain them because we think they'll bring us joy and, and true contentment. And so maybe it's, uh, it's, you know, if I just have my work and my family in place, or worship those two, and, and everything is kind of bent on getting those two things just right. 
Those the lights just dim. That was weird. Um, or it could be, man, just this particular relationship. And when that doesn't work out, man, food, that's, that's a great comfort. So maybe it's relationships and food. Right? We have some sort of combination that we look to. That, that, that's the kind of the, the polytheistic conglomerate that we look to and say that I have those things and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be okay. Now, we look at these and in and of themselves, may not we define them, they're really good things. Like they're, they're gifts from God. They're, they're not to be rejected. We're not to say, oh, there's a, there's a potential of worshiping these things. So therefore, we, we set them all aside. Work must be evil. Food must be evil. Schools must be evil. We must set those things away and just, I don't know, read our Bibles and, and pray more often and just stay away from, from everything else that goes on out there. When in reality, what, what God calls us to do, He really calls us to, to be what a human is meant to be. It, which means that we keep God in the place of worship. And it sounds so basic, but recognize there's a difference between what we articulate and saying, oh, this, this is most valuable in my life. This is what I love the most. This is what I care the most about. This is where I, I really get contentment and joy. And then when it comes down to the particulars of our lives, how we respond to situations, um, how we actually spend our time, our money, our energy, that demonstrates what our hearts truly worship. And so what we want is not just an articulated theology, but a, but a functional theology, one that gets worked out into our lives such that we feel it and see it and experience it. So really, we, we, we need to be worshiping God, related to God, like walking with Him, loving Him, seeing Him, abiding in Him. And then we're able to, to relate to self, other people, and the rest of creation properly. See, see, we tend to take maybe ourselves, like our own ego becomes shifted up here. Or, or maybe other people in relationships or family, those things become up here. Or created things that are really good to enjoy properly, we shift them up here. Instead of recognizing that God is the, the true organizing center of the entire universe. And if I'm, if I'm not in line with that in the way that I live, then things are going to be awry in my life. It's not going to operate correctly. Um, the concept of God's glory, it's, it's one that a lot of people try to define. It's like, everybody knows it, but not really. Like, what is God's glory? It's interesting that the Hebrew word for glory, it means weightiness. It means there's substance to it. It means there's actually a, like a force, a weight to that reality if it's, if it's glorious. And so... Yes, there are other things involved in this. It's a, you know, God's glory is the, is the public demonstration of who he is, of his character. But there is certainly a, a part of that definition which includes his weightiness, that he draws things to himself. He draws people to himself. And so God is meant to be that weighty center, that, that, that gravitational pulling center around which all of our, the rest of our lives are organized. I mean, he, he is meant to be that. Now, as we looked at... Um, the first week, when you guys were here, we had creation, fall, redemption, restoration. With the fall, we have a disjunction here. No longer are we, are we in a, a right relationship with God. We don't know him as we ought. We don't serve him as we ought. We don't love him as we ought. In fact, we're, we're rebels in his kingdom. We, we take other things and, and make them functional gods and deities in our lives. And so what we need is, first and foremost, a, a reconciliation that brings us back in a restored relationship with God. Otherwise, all these things, because if this is not 
in, a, in the right place, then these are going to be screwed up as well. They're, they're going to be a mess and a wreck. And they, they may seem to go well for a while, but it's going to be hollow, and eventually it's going to be seen for what it is. So what we need is this reconciliation. Flip over with me to Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5. Corinthians 5, starting in um, verse 17. It says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore, you, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So what we have, what Paul gives us in writing to the, the church of Corinth is that through Jesus, through faith in Christ, through union with him, the, the true son, the true image of God, who did it perfectly where we failed. We trust in him. We're now reconciled to God. This relationship is restored. Like it, the spirit of God actually comes to dwell within us. We know him. We're known by him. We're loved by him. We're able to love him. Where our hearts were, were, were cold and dark, and, and we're running after created things and, and elevating those in the position of God. Uh, now that's been flipped and turned, so we're restored to God. But not only are we reconciled to God, but we're given this ministry of reconciliation. That, that we're meant to, what Paul says, to be ambassadors. That we're carrying this message, we're bearing this message, we're, we're proclaiming it to other people. Um, as we go throughout our everyday lives, we're, we are carrying this message of reconciliation. Now the interesting thing about an ambassador, um, I had a political science professor in undergrad, and he was an ambassador in Germany for a while. And he would tell, I think he was really proud of that fact, because he would just like tell story after story after story about him being ambassador in Germany. So that's, that's really the only thing I remember about him. But he was an ambassador in Germany. And the thing was, he, he didn't like be an ambassador and then stop being an ambassador. Like, okay, now, now it's on, I'm representing the United States of America, and now I'm done with this meeting, I, I carry on, I have dinner with my wife, and I'm, I'm no longer an ambassador. It was only when I did the ambassadorial type things. Like, that's when I'm truly an ambassador. And now I cut it off, and no one recognizes me as representing the United States. I just kind of carry on and go about the rest of my life. So, so what this means is, us as ambassadors carrying this, this message of reconciliation, there's not like certain small slots where that's, that's where I'm doing the work of an ambassador. It's, it's only when I, I prayed with my coworker after sharing the gospel. Yes, that, that's definitely being an ambassador. But don't think that if that's the only thing that it means to represent Christ, to represent his kingdom. Because wherever we go, whatever we're doing, we are, we are putting on display, or we should be putting on display, what it looks like to be transformed by this reconciliation, by this gospel. Now, we absolutely need the proclaimed word of God. We absolutely need um, the verbal proclamation of the gospel. If we don't have that, there is no reconciliation. 
Like we need words. That's that's very fundamental to 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 restoration, to reconciliation. But these words actually affect a change and a transformation in our lives such that we live differently. See, the, the Great Commission, so in Matthew 28, when, when Jesus gathers his disciples and sends them out and says, go, go proclaim the good news, go make disciples, go baptize them, go teach them uh, to obey everything that I, I've, I've instructed you. Uh, theologian John Frame says that that is actually an invitation to re-engage the cultural mandate which is the Genesis 1, 26 through 28 that we read earlier. To exercise dominion, to image God, to represent him. So because the relationship with God was, was deformed, it was, it, was, it was utterly broken, we were no longer able to do the Genesis 1, 26 through 28 um, mandate that we're called to. But now through the work of Christ, we're, we're reconciling the relationship with God, and now we step back into that same mandate. So we go back into this creative world. We go back into the different spheres that we have. We go back into our, our workplaces. We go back into our neighborhoods. We go back into our homes. We go back into the, the public square. We go back into all the different places that we do life in. And we are now representing who Christ is. We're representing what his kingdom is like. Now we might be lying. Like our lives might be a, a testimony of a falsehood in that. And oftentimes it is for all of us, and we, we still fail. But we have to recognize this, this being an ambassador of Christ is a whole life enterprise. It's not something that we're able to, to turn off and on, but it encompasses all of life. Um, an old Dutch statesman, politician, theologian, Abraham Kuyper, um, said that there's not one square inch in the entire cosmos over which Christ, who is Lord over all, does not cry, mine. He owns everything. He has is, he is reconciled everything. He, he's working through us. Like his church, his people are the means of reconciling this world, bearing this message uh, to the world, of reconciling all things back to himself. And that includes all of our lives. It's so easy to separate in our hearts and in our minds kind of a, a spiritual, sacred, Christian, biblical category over here. And there are certain things that fit over there. Bible study, praying, coming to Gospel Center Life class, worshiping on a Sunday. Those are the things, sharing the gospel with coworkers. Those are the things that are, that are spiritual and sacred and God really cares about those. The, the B team and maybe the C team, maybe the subs for the C team, is everything else. So, so the jobs we have to do, we'll even, we'll even grade our jobs a little bit. It's so like if, if they're really service-oriented, um, say, okay, so if you're a teacher or in healthcare, then it's like, all right, that's, that's a little bit further up. Uh, but if you're, if you're in finance or if you're a lawyer, then shoot, you're probably like way down here somewhere. So we do this and say that oh, really God cares more about certain categories of life than he does other categories. But if we recognize that he created everything, and said, go steward that, representing me, making me the waiting, organizing center of your lives. Then we see that all of it matters. How we engage it matters. The details matter. How we step into our jobs tomorrow matters. How, how we engage with our neighbors. And how, we, how we think about political issues. How we, we engage um, just the, the various relationships that, that we have, whether it be in the workplace, People that we just get to know, coffee shop, all of these different areas matter. 
And in those places, we are we're bearing witness to who Jesus is. And the question over and over again is, tell the truth. Is this what a life transformed by the gospel actually looks like in all these different areas that God has called us to? So it really comes down to, um, yes, we need proclamation of the gospel. Absolutely. We're not saved unless we hear this good news and trust in Jesus. But there needs to be an embodiment of that. Like the gospel actually creates a people. It's a creative word. And that means our lives, we're going to do things. And that brings us back to what are those organizing principles in our lives. If we're truly loved by this God of the universe, and we see him for who he is, we're beholding him for who he is, then over time, he's going to begin working in us a functional worship of himself. We love him more and more and more. And then the, the decisions we make, the ways that we respond to hard situations, uh, the ways we engage relationships, the way we, we steward our work, it's going to look more in line with what God has called us to in those different areas. So I want to I read just a couple texts quickly, and then we'll go back to our tables. Um, the 1 Corinthians 12. step into the different spheres of influence God gives to us, <clears throat> we have to recognize that he's actually gifted us in certain ways. Like as Christians, he, he's given us his spirit, and he's wired us and crafted us a certain way to engage all these different areas. Um, so I want to read uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 7, and then verse 11. Then we'll flip over to James. All right, verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts for the same spirit. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. I'm going to jump down to 11. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Uh, so, God gives gifts to his people. I think a lot of times we're, we're hesitant to, to acknowledge ways in which God has wired us, like things that we're actually good at. Um, and I think to some degree, rightly so. Like the, there's the danger of, of pride and self-centeredness and say, look, look where I'm, I'm kind of um, just self-congratulation. We operate in a society um, that we see a lot of that. And it, it's easy in our own hearts. But consider this for a second. If God really has given gifts to his children, like he's given them to us. He's given us abilities, ways of thinking, wirings, desires, proclivities. And they can be used for the benefit of other people, for the flourishing of other people. Then I would argue that it's, it's actually more prideful to, to reject that as a gift. Because that implicitly is saying, if, if I'm not willing to acknowledge what God has given, that's implicitly saying it actually is something that's intrinsic to me. Like I, I'm, just, I'm just good in and of myself. But I don't want to appear prideful, so therefore I'm not going to talk about it. But if it truly is a gift from God, and we recognize and we believe that's from God, then we're going to be able to talk about that and say, well, no, I don't have that apart from the grace of God. I'm not able to serve in these ways apart from the grace of God. It's all a gift. I can actually engage this job in a certain way. I'm actually good at some things. People recognize that I'm good at some things. 
But that's the grace of God. Those are the gifts that he's given by his spirit. And as verse 7 says, for the common good. You know, uh, I'm all for strengths finders, and we do those tests here, and they're helpful. Well, they can be taken too far, but they, they really are helpful in understanding how we're wired. But so often we can, we can discern, try to discern and understand, okay, how am I crafted, how am I wired, so that I can be elevated, so that I can get the promotion, so that I can build a certain resume, just so I can feel better about myself or make more money or be more successful, um, as, as some may define it. Instead of saying, oh, God has actually gifted me for the benefit of other people. He's gifted me so I can cause others to flourish. He's gifted me so I can serve the different vocations that I have, the different spheres of influence I have, to benefit those people. Um, I want to flip, so you don't have to flip there, but James 1.17, it says that, that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, the children of God. So, so not just the ways that we're wired, not just our giftings, but, but think of it more broadly. Think of all the things that, that you've been called to do, tangible and material. On the tangible side, you've got uh, material things, you've got resources, you've got money. Um, on the intangible side, you've got influence. You have authority in certain relationships. And you're like, I don't, in my work, I don't have any influence. I don't have any power. You do. Everyone has influence. And there are relationships that you have even more influence within. Um, our relationships, how we steward those relationships and engage those relationships matters. It impacts people. It influences people. Now, if you flip to, your, to the back of the sheet that you have there, I mean, this is by no means definitive or exhaustive. But I think these five categories give us some good hooks to think about. In, in God's good created order that he's reconciling to himself, what do you, what's my plot of land? Like, what has he given me to, to make sense of, to, to draw value out of, to, to seek the common good for So I want to take some time. Um, it'll be weirdly quiet for a little while, but that's okay. So individually go through and just think through what has God given to you in this area and how could it be stewarded and wielded uh, for the glory of God and the good of other people. And then come in and start talking around. We'll, we'll take a little bit longer of a break, so get some time to discuss it as well. And keep in mind, it's, it's hard to do. But recognize that if we don't recognize these things as gifts, then it's implicitly more prideful. Because we're actually assuming that I can't talk about it because if I talk about it, that's just elevating self. Instead of saying, I can recognize the ways in which God's wired me. Precisely because God has given these as gifts, not because I'm I'm so incredible, because He's a, a good kind Father. So let's take a handful of minutes and get through that. All right, I'd love to hear some of the responses around the table. What are some? You pick from any category, but what are some things that I don't know? Maybe you thought about it in a different way, or you just recognize <clears throat> I really can't steward this reality, whatever it is, for the glory of God, for the good of other people. Um, what are some of those things? And, and really, in particular, in what ways? Like, how does it actually get worked out? It's always happened so chatty for a while, and then it's up front. financial resources. Ah, financial? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so giving what we don't necessarily need to spend on ourselves to give elsewhere. It's good. One thing that was mentioned at our table was just that, like, if you're always an influence wherever you are. Like, hmm. I'm, I'm new to the area, and 
always like new people in the Denver area, but just like knowing that you don't have to have like a position of like a position of influence or position of authority to really mm. kind of like have influence on people. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. There, there's so many distant relationships we have with people that we don't think about on a regular basis, but the things that we do and say and decisions we make influence them. But it's so easy because you don't have, like you're saying, like you don't have that personal contact necessarily. So you're going to think completely differently about it. That's yeah, that's great. What else? Here's an interesting one for me to think differently on in terms of money. So, how do I put it? Um, I I was kind of the the typical undergraduate single male in college where my room didn't always smell the greatest, didn't always look the greatest. Like aesthetics were not like high on my priority list. That's probably the the most diplomatic way to say it. Um, (laughs) My wife has an eye for beauty. Um, She is beautiful and she just recognizes things that are beautiful. And and she just, she loves to draw that out. She loves to to show hospitality, to to welcome people into her home. Uh, We were able to just buy a house, praise the Lord, in the Denver market. But three weeks ago, we were able to move into our first house. Um, It's like, her mind goes to, okay, how do we make this space good and welcoming for people to come in? Now, for me, I, I think, well, do, we, do we really need another throw pillow on that couch? Like, do we really need another one? Or another six candles over there on that couch? Like, I think one cent at a time is totally fine. I don't have to, like, rotate through and then the seasons. Um, I, th- I think we're okay on that front. But recognizing, and she's helped me to see this a lot, is that we can invest money in those kind of things that maybe ostensibly like initially they seem kind of just self-serving. And they can be, certainly can be. But to view those everyday purchases with an eye toward how am I loving other people with these? I mean, we enjoy, we love having people over at our home. We've hosted gospel communities plenty of times in the past. Um, space matters. Material things matter. How people feel when they come into a space matters. Like all those things actually have influence. I mean, they actually have an impact on people and on relationships. Um, how spaces are organized, so people have an eye for how is furniture laid out, um, those kind of things. All those things 
matter. And, and again, this can, it can be blown out of proportion. It can be taken to something where, and this is now becoming a, a thing that, that's worshipped functionally. Like, I have to have this thing. It has to look a certain way. Um, but it can also be seen as a gift to be stewarded. Like, it doesn't dominate my life. It doesn't trump other more important things. But it is something that can be used and stewarded. So that, that's something that had to get graciously flipped in my mind to some degree um, in these five years of marriage. Anything else that came out of the tables? I don't know, I just like loved, I don't know, I was, I realized I'm thinking in a very tangible way, and very like, I have a job, or I have, or not even a job, but sure, but like, so it's Jesus. I said I have a car, I have an apartment, I just like hmm. a savings account, and then Kara, so. <laughs> um, um, she's like, well, I have a job, and I like, enable, like, I have a job, and that's incredible, and then on top of that, like, That's good. Yeah, kind of pulling back the layers a little bit. And, and it's recognizing, again, going back to the, the idea that it's, all these things are gifts. It frees us up to, to enjoy them and also steward them for the good of other people, to make sacrifices where necessary, um, to invest in the lives of other people. Um, to see them as gifts frees us incredibly. Otherwise, we're going to be hoarding. We're going to think it's about us. We're going to try to like dance that fine line of being honest about who we are and what we have and what we can do but then not go too far that we're perceived as being prideful. Instead, we say, God has given me things. He's been gracious and kind to me. And I want to enjoy these things, but also usher others into the presence of God through the way that I use them. And that's, that is, that's been freeing for me. Um, the story that, that Tim Keller, he's a pastor in, in New York City, tells about a guy that is part of his church, worked at a, a TV studio, um, and pretty high up in the company, had a lot of influence, um, well-respected, well-liked in the company. And one of his subordinates, a couple people down, she, made, she was newer to the company and made a, a huge blunder that affected a lot of people, uh, cost them financially. It was just a, a bad mistake. So she goes to him, kind of distraught, like, what do I do? I'm, I'm relatively new. I don't have a whole lot invested yet. Um, this could be the end of my, my job right now. Well, he, who's been around for a while, well-established, um, has a lot of respect, and has, you know, quote-unquote, more chips to play, if you will, in the company. He owns, this guy, member of, of Keller's church, um, he, he owns that issue, the mistake that was had. So he goes to, to his superior and says, hey, here's what happened. Uh, my fault, I should have been on this, um, should have been able to, to keep this from happening. It's on me. So he took it, you know, a little bit of a backlash, but not really too much. And she, like her name is not even mentioned in the process. She's utterly stunned by that. And she knows that he's a Christian, knows that he goes, well, actually doesn't know where he goes to church, but knows that he's a Christian. So goes to him and says, I have to go to your church. Like, I don't know where it is or, or what it's about, but I have to go there um, just to, to see what all this is about. Um, so here you have an example of, uh, this guy could have come in day one and verbally proclaimed the gospel to this, this subordinate. And, and maybe she would have heard it, believed, trusted in Jesus, and come to the church, and great. Um, that, that certainly happens, and we, we never want to 
keep people from doing that if that's how they feel inclined. But what he did was he lived as a, a faithful employee and a manager. He loved those who were under him well. And then when someone under him made a, a massive mistake, he owned it. Like he, he, he sacrificed something of himself, and he took on that offense himself. He embodied the gospel. Like he lived out the reality of what Jesus has done for us. And, and when we do that, when it becomes that tangible and that real, people can't ignore that. They can't walk away from it. They can't run away from it. They see that there's substance to that. There's something there. So then she comes and she, she became, um, I don't know if she became a, a Christian or not. Uh, I heard this story right after it happened. But she became a regular participant in that, in that congregation um, in New York City. So that, that's just an example of, of one person stewarding the context he had in the workplace um, for the good of other people that puts on display the glory of God. I think it's helpful to, to think in, in three different categories. This is where we do a lot of our living. Um, it's not exclusive by any means, but it, it does hit on most of the areas of stewardship that we have. So home, workplace, and neighborhood. Um, so just, it just helpful hooks to, to think in terms of, okay, well, what, is my, what is my territory, so to speak? So workplace, I'll give you the example of Keller. Um, in the home, a lot of this just comes down to, man, be it a roommate situation, be it uh, you're married and your spouse or for your kids. Like, are we living in such a way that we're putting on the humility of Christ, looking for ways to lay down our lives for the good of the other person? That, that, is, that is hard to do. Uh, when I have desires, I have wants. I, I, I have to admit, I failed at this yesterday. Um, the, the, uh, the in-laws, great relationship with them, but they were in town. And they were helping out uh, getting stuff unpacked because we're still living out of boxes. And You guys know how it is when you move. It's like, it takes forever to finally get the last box unpacked. So we're, we're chipping away at that. Um, I, was just, I was just tired. And uh, all I wanted to do was, was come home from the... Ele- no. I was off yesterday, so I went to the 11 a, or the 9 a.m. Uh, with the whole family, and then we got snooze brunch. Praise the Lord for snooze. That is a, that is a gift to be stewarded. Um, so went, went there uh, and then went home afterward, and all I wanted to do was turn on the Broncos game and relax for a while. And uh, my wife's parents were only in town for a couple days, and she's like, we have them here. They're willing to work. They're willing to get stuff done. Can we just get more done, get more done, get more done? And I'm like... Yeah, babe, I'll be there in a minute. I'll, uh, let me just uh, time next time out. I failed in this. Failed, I, we still got a lot done. Saturday was like a full work day. Uh, but there was a perfect example. Like as, as I was reading my notes, I'm like, man, I just 24 hours ago had an opportunity to embody the gospel to my wife and in front of my in-laws, and I, and I forsook it. Now, that doesn't mean that it's always wrong to, to watch the game when, when there's other stuff to do. Like, it just takes wisdom and discernment in each, each category. But that was an example where I could have set aside my desires, my wants, my longings, and said, oh, I, I'm going to make a sacrifice here. Something, a good thing, a gift, enjoying a football game, uh, but to go and, and love the people that are around me in my home. Um, thankfully, there are other times when I, I don't fail, but that was an example where I could have, I could have done that. Um, third, so neighborhood. Uh, example from some good friends of my wife and I. Um, they, they embody to, to Aaron and myself, Aaron's my wife, um, just the, the beauty of building good relationships with their neighbors that, 
that have depth to them, that have substance to them, such that these neighbors are coming back to them again and again and again. So one, one perfect example is uh, the couple across the street, they just began going to a different church. They're not coming to park. They live down on the south side. Um, just started going to a church. Uh, they got baptized there, but we're not really sure what they believe about the gospel. Um, our friends are kind of like, we've had a lot of conversations. They, we're not really sure that they grasp what Jesus has done for them. Like, that's not the language they use. But they, over the, the past two years, they've built this really good relationship. Um, she's, she's a dog trainer. Um, she's been training their new dog. They're in each other's homes. They're getting dinner together. A handful of weeks ago, they had dinner together, and, and, and our friends could tell they really wanted to get together this time. And as they sat down, they're like, hey, we're having trouble in our marriage. Can you guys help us process a few things? Um, and and they, they brought up a few of the issues that were coming up around communication and, and um, extended family. And, and now they're going to our friends that they've developed a friendship with over the past couple of years, asking for wisdom asking for insight on how to, to better live their lives. Now, that is such a beautiful example to, for our friends to, to step in and give one godly advice that's just going to help them, but have it be laced with an understanding of, of what Jesus has done for us and how that's the true picture of what, what marriage is meant to be. Like marriage is imaging Christ in the church. And so if that kind of language and imagery is laced in as they're, as they're asking about this, now they're being communicated uh, deep truths about who the God of the universe is. And, and this relationship has just continued and continued and continued. Um, there's a, um, an author, Greg Forrester, he, he was at a conference um, back in April, and he said, what if, what if, in broader society, people looked at the church not as being judgmental or closed-minded or whatever other terms that get floated around, what if they looked at the church and said, that is the place that I can go to get wisdom? Like, whenever I hear Christians from that place talk, or um, I, I happen to, to go to a class there, or I engage in a conversation with, with a group of those Christians, or I attend on a Sunday, it, they made sense of life and reality in such a way that maybe I didn't believe everything they were saying, but it, it, really, it really made sense. Like, I, I could use that as a lens to look at my humanness, my workplace, the, the brokenness of other people, the failure of relationships, and say, that actually, that matches reality. I, I see some truth in that. And that was a beautiful challenge for me, and I, I told our friends, that's a, that's a perfect picture. Here's this couple that, not really sure what they believe about the gospel, interested in some things, but now they're going and seeking wisdom from our friends on how to do marriage. Like they saw them as people that, hey, we can ask you questions and get genuine insight. So what if we lived our lives in such a way that, that we could converse with people and not have to, to jump into this like weird, spiritual, sacred box where all of a sudden we use like Christianese language and people are kind of weirded out by us, but we just talk about real life, real things in a way that makes sense of them that's grounded in the world that God has created and the way that he communicated about it. What if that's the way that we were able to converse over time? That, that's a beautiful embodiment of the gospel. Um, let me check time. I hear loud noises from the basement. Oh, we're good. We've got a few minutes. Um, so I want to look at, at one text and one paradigm, and then we're done. So Philippians chapter 2. 
All right, Philippians 2, starting verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning that he set aside all the rights and privileges of being part of the triune God. He set that aside for a time. Verse 7, But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So so we're called to image God. We're called to to represent his character, who he is faithfully. And, And we see who God is in Jesus. God takes on flesh, and we see the full embodiment of that word, of, of who God is. And so as we look to him, we, we see what it means to be truly human. And we understand what it means to, to live as a person. And, and what we have here, what, what, what Jesus did in coming to earth, was to lower himself, to lower himself, to lower himself. But you, you can almost picture like stairs going down as you read uh, starting verse 6, who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and then being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. It's like lower and lower and lower and lower, even to the point of the, the most radical form of public humiliation, being hung on a cross. And so this becomes the, the paradigm for us. This becomes the lens through which we, we should see all of our lives, that we exist to glorify God and to serve other people. How do we steward what God has given us? Uh, and I really challenge you guys, the, the list that you made on the back, stick that in a, in a Bible or folder or, or something and refer back to it and maybe add some things to it, maybe tweak the way you articulate it and think throughout the week, okay, how do I steward this area of my life? Like, what does it mean to, to, yes, enjoy and also make sacrifices for the good of other people? This is, this is the God that we image, the one who has served in the most definitive of ways, and that, that, that then propels us to go serve in like manner. Um, one last paradigm I want to look at, and then we're done. But I find it interesting, the fact that everything started in the biblical narrative in a garden. Um, there's, a, there's a professor at UCLA, a professor of geography, um, Jared Diamond. Um, he's really kind of become known as an anthropologist as well. Um, he wrote Guns, Germs, and Steel. He's got a few other books. You guys familiar with that? So if you guys have read that book, his, one of the arguments he makes in there, I don't agree with everything, but one of the arguments he makes is that if you, if you trace human history and human civilization, like how it developed over time, it began with the simple question of how are we going to eat? So originally, it was, it was all nomadic tribes. Like, you, you follow the meat. So it goes there, you, you go with it. Now, go, you exhaust this part, we, we, we eat some of the, the plants and berries, exhaust that, carry on. Like, you, you move on further. Very nomadic. Well, then you begin, to, you see in, in human history, the development of, of different types of technology. And they're able to, to farm different plots of land. And so now what that allows is, is for people to, to congregate, be in a certain location, and then a certain group of people now go out and they're the hunters. And, and then they come back to home where they have a more stable 
society. And, and then as technology develops, as, as more advanced ways of producing food and a more developed economy grows over time, you see actual civilizations grow and grow and grow. So when I was reading that, I, I just was thinking that it's so interesting that everything began in a garden. Like God planted the garden. He established everything there, put human beings in there, and said, okay, go work it and keep it. Or in other words, synonyms for those would be go cultivate it and protect it. So, so draw the value out of what exists there. Like use your mind and your hands and the different gifts and abilities you have to, to make something of it that is of value to other people. And then, and then guard that and protect that and make sense of that so that it can be truly useful for other people. So, so that begin, that's, that, that's the basic um, call that we have originally. And so it got me thinking of what, what is kind of the, the cycle of um, gardening or farming, uh, if you will. And it begins with, sorry, I'm already screwed up. Uh, it begins with tilling. So if you, if you come to a piece of land, you've got to till it. You've got to get the, the soil open enough to receive the seeds that you're going to plant. So you get the rocks out, whatever else. That's back-breaking work. It's very intense. Um, by the sweat of your brows, extremely true in this category. Um, you're tilling the land. And then you move on to sowing. So you're, you're investing something in it. Um, it's kind of the initial starting process of seeing some growth and some value be uh, developed from it. And then along the way, it starts growing, and, you, and you're tending to it, and making sure the growth is, is being cultivated, and it's, it's growing healthily. Um, and then you reap that, and you celebrate. You enjoy the fruit of the labor. This is the weirdest bee I've ever drawn in my life. Um, you, you enjoy, you delight in the fruit that's been produced from the labor. And, and this cycle continues. And then as you grow, and as you have more things, then... The till, you, you expand your borders. Um, you till out further. You're able to, to do more. And this has been helpful for me. Take it or leave it. I think it's a, it's a helpful way of thinking of all the different types of work that we do, even down to the relationships that we have and growth that we're, we're seeing in our own lives, our own souls. We're usually somewhere in this process and usually several different places on several different areas. So... Things I'm, I'm growing in, relationships I have, um, a new job, whatever else. Um, so, for example, tilling would be you're starting a new job. Like, it's, it's brand new. You're figuring out the lay of the land, developing relationships there, kind of just breaking up the soil a little bit. Um, sowing is, okay, you're beginning to get a little bit established. You're, you're investing some. Um, you're beginning that process. Tending is, is growth and development. And along the way, maybe you see, wow, that that certain project that I did or that, that case that I closed or whatever it is, wow, there's really good fruit from that. That, that was, I see the benefit of all, the, all that's gone into it. Um, where I think this is especially helpful, one is just identifying this is a normal cycle. Like in, the, in, the, in this, this fallen present that is being redeemed, this is normal to experience. We shouldn't always think that we're just going to kind of hang out and, and enjoy the fruit of our labor and maybe a little bit of tending. But there, there's going to be some some tough work that's, that's always going on. Um, so I think identifying, even in relationships, uh, maybe it's a newer relationship and you're just kind of tilling the soil a little bit. Uh, maybe it's a, it's a long-standing relationship and you're helping that person till the soil in a certain area of development in their lives. Maybe it's for yourself. You, you yourself need to grow in that. Um, but it's also important to realize we never should stop in one category. 
Like if we're, if we're tilling in one area perpetually, we're just kind of spinning our tires there, that's not good. Um, but it's also not good to, to just be trying to celebrate and enjoy all the time. Like there is hard work that has to be done. There is sacrifice. That we enjoy things. We enjoy the gifts of God. But then, all right, tomorrow's another day. We, we may be doing some tilling there. We may be doing some, some hard sowing. Um, and it's going to feel like I'm, I may be starting over. And in a sense, we are. Um, so just interesting to, to think that originally... We were placed in a garden. People were placed in a garden. And that was going to be the basis of, as, as Jared Diamond argues, of the rest of the development of civilization. And, and I think it gives us a little bit of a paradigm to understand all those different contexts um, that we're invested in. All right. I'm going to pray for us. Um, do you guys have any questions about Group Connect or gospel communities or anything moving forward before I pray? Yeah. It'll be the same groups the entire day. Yeah, uh, we have. I'm not sure what our final number is that, that are going to be there. Maybe like 15-ish gospel communities. Um, some are going to be brand new that are starting out. Those. Are, it, it really is fun to be part of uh, a brand new gospel community because you're you're able to help form some of that culture. Like every gospel community, if you visit a few different ones, um, they'll have a different feel to them, a different culture. They have different rhythms of what they do. Um, but existing ones are awesome as well. Great question. Great. So group connect this Sunday after each of the three services. Speed dating. All right. Pray for us. Father, thank you. Uh, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that uh, we see who you are. We see what you're like in the person and work of Jesus. Uh, maybe see him more. Uh, just what we read earlier in Philippians 2, um, may his humility uh, penetrate our minds in such a way that, and our imaginations in such a way, uh, that we begin seeing our worlds differently. Uh, we see the, the different spheres that we have to, to steward and exercise influence in, um, that, that we see them afresh. We see them as opportunities to, to image you, to put you on display, um, and to love you, to love the people around us. So, so help us. Help us to think creatively. Help us to, to think outside of the, the normal paradigms that, that we, we tend to operate within. Uh, help us to see the, the beauty of this world that you've, you've given to us to, uh, to develop culture out of. Um, so thank you. Thank you for these past four weeks. Uh, thank you for the gospel. Thank you that it, um, that it actually works transformation in our lives such that we're different. We're, we're not the same uh, day after day and week after week and year after year. So may we see more of that transformation uh, for the sake of, of your name and for the good of the city. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.